Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we are seeking a new routine, unhooking from harmful habits, and finding creative ways to seek comfort and knowledge as we look at unplugging without disconnecting. Let's face it, autopilot has become, well, automatic, without question or concern. This week loops into next, and then months become quarters, and years get swallowed by decades. Before you know it, you're sick, tired, and hungry for something more, but you've been turned around so many times like a kid at a party with a blindfold and a bat, smacking away, hoping to hit it big. Do you even know where the pinata is or what's inside? To restart your life in a new direction, you might need to take it back to idle to even determine what's important and how far apart you are from a wish to reality. This isn't an isolated journey, so staying connected to the positive while you disconnect from the negative is vital. Ready to untether and soar? I'm pretty confident that this is not a new revelation, that our minds may be overstimulated in today's world. Everything we need to know, want to know, could even possibly fathom can be found on a device that fits in our hand. We're walking around with access to answer every question we could ever pose. Now, do we always get the right answer? Well, no. There are opinions mixed with factual studies competing for SEO-influenced positioning. So, you're satisfied with the first answer? Chances are, it's paid to be first instead of accurate. This brings me to the lost art of wonder. To have interest in knowing or learning something, to think about something with curiosity. Oh, don't you know we're going to explore the benefits of wonder and wander? and the damaging effects of not giving the mind the chance to spread its wings and fly through all kinds of possibilities, never caring if it lands on the right answer or not. In fact, let's do that right now, straight away, before we get too caught up in what the world wants us to know and not what we really desire to know. Here are five reasons to let your mind wander from Eric Scott Burton. Eric is a writer on self-improvement, entrepreneurship, and mindset. He started his personal journey to better himself in 2009. It's given him an understanding that being stuck on something, no matter what it is, is part of the process. And sometimes all you need is someone to state the obvious or come up with some creative ideas. Becoming that source of information is his overall goal in life. He wants to help people overcome obstacles, to grow, to learn, and to thrive. This article is found on ericscottburton.com. Eric, I think we could be fast friends. Letting the mind wander is one of those skills that you might not hear much from people these days. While we like to talk about focus, strategies, curbing procrastination, and hustling, letting the mind wander isn't something that appears on those lists. It doesn't seem like a viable tactic in any measure. It sounds so close to daydreaming, right? Who'd want to live a dream in their own head rather than getting out there to achieve their dreams? 
Well, as someone who uses this technique on a regular basis and honed it in for his teenage years, Eric says he has some reasons to pick up this skill. This was one of the keys to helping him learn all about himself, identify important skills amongst other things. Mind you, this took a fair bit of mindset development on his part, but that's the case with any skill, right? You're not going to reap all the benefits of something immediately. But here are some reasons for starting this now. First, you do this naturally already. Whether you're aware of it or not, our minds do wander naturally. One Japanese study looked at the mind wander aspect and uncovered something interesting. In this study, subjects were to watch a movie and to pay attention to it for the whole duration. During this time, researchers examined individual brain waves during parts of the movie. When there was a lot of plot, subjects were focused on the movie the entire time. Parts of the brain designed for focus were all lighting up. However, that changed during the natural lull moments. In fact, researchers noted that during those times, people were blinking more than necessary during those moments where they weren't focusing. This is a sign that they were letting their minds wander. What this means for you is that you're already doing this and you're not even aware of it. Start paying attention to it. Allowing your mind to wander is a conscious controlled action, even if you're not paying much attention to it in those instances. Second, it helps you focus. Yeah, allowing your mind to wander does wonders to your focus, even more than taking breaks. To understand why that is, you need to look more at cognitive science. In short, two researchers looked into why so many people struggled to develop a focus and found that we move between two modes of thinking. This also echoes the previous research with the film. During the plot of films, we're focusing on what's happening. When there isn't much excitement, we're moving on to the other mode. Our mind does this automatically and does so by identifying which mode is the most advantageous for us at that moment. These modes are heavily influenced by markers. So the most obvious the markers are, the easier it will be for us to switch modes. All that said, if you're blurring the lines between these two modes, automatic and conscious mode, your ability to focus will become harder to do. So what, you may be asking. The reason all of this is so relevant these days is so many of us are not aware that we're multitasking. When you go to cook something up, how often do you have Netflix running in the background or have a YouTube video running? Or how about that urge to be checking your phone when you should be doing something else? While these are distractions, they're also stimuli for your mind. If you're only ever exposing yourself to interesting information, if you're only ever exposing yourself to stimuli, but not taking the time to actually think about it, to process it, to look at it from different angles, to try to run it against other paradigms or structures you have in your current mental schema. If you don't do that work or just being alone with your own thoughts, you're probably extracting just a small fraction of the potential value. In other words, if you're indulging in too many stimuli, you're not going to be able to focus as well. Allowing your mind to wander allows you to process things better and process all that stimuli. 
This helps you to focus better. Third, mind wander opens up your creativity. Keep in mind that letting your mind wander isn't the act of you doing nothing. It's never a waste of time. After all, you do this all the time, and it also helps with focus. It also does wonders for your creative thinking. Eric says he takes 10-minute sessions to meditate and allow his mind to wander. This helps him articulate a lot of his articles. By allowing your mind to wander, you're processing the world around you and coming up with solutions. You're able to focus more on the task and come up with truly creative ideas. This also makes sense when you're considering people's strokes of genius all over the world, yours included. Many people came up with revolutionary ideas or fixed small issues by doing other things that require little mental processing. People have had great ideas from simply washing dishes, taking a shower, or doing some other mindless task. Of course, some of it can be attributed to your conscious mind, but it wouldn't be able to activate in the first place if you were doing something more mentally demanding. Fourth, mind wander lets you comprehend your emotions. Eric says, the biggest problem I find is that people struggle to grasp emotions and process them properly. They would rather hide from emotions that make them feel safe. Jessica Wildfire wrote a fantastic piece talking about this. I can understand that from my own knowledge of negativity and how our brain works, you naturally want to be pushing forward, overcoming any negativity at all in your life. And while you can convince yourself that what you're doing is good for you, the truth is it's not. If you want to grow, you're going to have to accept the bad stuff that comes with it. As regrettable as it is, you have to do this. As much as we all want to feel happy all the time, we weren't created to have one single emotion. Our brains have developed so much that we experience many kinds of emotions. Grief, anger, hatred, fear, frustration, anxiety, depression, doubt, skepticism, loneliness. While you see these emotions and many others as bad things, you might see them as necessary things. Being lonely is an opportunity for your mind to wander, but also a way for you to think about who you want to become, not to mention what sort of relationships you want to have in your life. You won't be able to appreciate these emotions and leverage them if you constantly think of them as bad things. Even though something is bad at first, it doesn't make it bad entirely. There are many ways to leverage emotions, but only until you understand them can you process them. Fifth, mind wander can help you with goal setting. From loneliness, you can get a better grasp of yourself. The same can be true for allowing your mind to wander. If you're already thinking of ways to be solving problems or improving yourself by mind wandering, it makes sense that this can translate to goal setting. One study did make that connection to mind wandering, boosting your abilities to set goals. The study found that when you're doing an undemanding task followed by setting personal goals, people found it easier to do that. On top of that, those who followed those sequences of actions were able to set higher and more concrete goals. 
The reason that is, is because while doing the undemanding task, the subjects were prompted to think about what they really wanted to do in their life. Another thing to note is that those who let their mind wander also are fine with getting rewards later rather than now. This is considerable since most people are used to instant gratification these days. All in all, these tactics help them to improve their own long-term goal-setting skills and achieving them. As you can see, developing the skill to mind wander can help in many aspects of your life without you even realizing it. It's important these days since the world is filled with so many kinds of distractions. Many of us struggle to understand our emotions and most encourage us to be happy or offer other generic advice. The truth of the matter is perhaps sometimes you need someone to listen to you and your problems. Or maybe do you need to have a better grasp of your emotions? Either way, this skill can help in so many different ways. The only thing to note is that where your mind wanders off does matter significantly. It's not going to help you if you drag it off to some depressing corner and never confront those emotions. Train yourself to take control of your mind wandering and you'll find yourself enjoying these benefits and more. Okay, so now we see the importance of letting your mind soar instead of veering off course. But when every second of the day seems to be filled with mind-numbing information, entertainment, and overstimulation, when is that supposed to happen? As with anything else, you will have to be intentional. I used to work with a guy who actually went to see a doctor because he couldn't shut off his mind. He was obsessed with consuming information that it was ruling his life, disrupting his sleep, and making him miserable. Wouldn't this be CNN's target persona? If it's news you're looking for, you can get what's happening in personal opinions on your phone, on the web, at the newspaper stand. Yes, they still exist. And on the TV, literally 24-7. The same headlines over and over and over again. So no need to rush if you missed it. It will be up again shortly. If it's entertainment you're seeking, then you've got it on your mobile device, on the computer, in a box, on a PlayStation, by yourself, or connected to people all over the world. We haven't even tapped into the social side of things. Want to participate, like, love, connect, creep, poke, wink, PM, DM? You can do this from any phone, computer, tablet. But what about connecting with people in person and sharing. Is this as antiquated as wonder? Neuroscientist Daniel J. Levington explains how our addiction to technology is making us less efficient in his article, Why the Modern World is Bad for Your Brain. In an era of email, text messages, Facebook, and Twitter, we're all required to do several things at once. But this constant multitasking is taking its toll. Our brains are busier than ever before. We're assaulted with facts, pseudo-facts, jibber-jabber, and rumor all posing as information. Trying to figure out what you need to know and what you can ignore is exhausting. At the same time, we're all doing more. 30 years ago, travel agents made our airlines and rail reservations, salespeople helped us find what we were looking for in shops, and professional typists or secretaries helped busy people 
with their correspondence. Now we do most of those things on our own. We're doing the job of 10 people while still trying to keep up with our lives, our children, our parents, our friends, our careers, our hobbies, and our favorite TV shows. Our smartphones have become Swiss army knives, like appliances that include dictionaries, calculators, web browsers, email, Game Boy, appointment calendar, voice recorder, guitar tuner, weather forecaster, GPS, texter, Twitter, Facebook updater, and flashlight. They're more powerful and do more things than most of the advanced computers at IBM corporate headquarters 30 years ago. And we use them all the time. Part of a 21st century mania, we're cramming everything we do into every single spare moment of downtime. We text while we're walking across the street, catch up on email while standing in a line, and while having lunch with friends. We check to see what our friends are doing when we're sitting right with them. At the kitchen counter, cozy and secure in our own domicile, we write our shopping lists on our smartphones. While we're listening to that wonderfully informative podcast on urban beekeeping. But there's a fly in the ointment. Although we think we're doing several things at once, multitasking, this is a powerful and diabolical illusion. Earl Miller, a neuroscientist at MIT and one of the world's experts on divided attention, says that our brains are not wired to multitask well. When people think they're multitasking, they're actually just switching from one task to another very rapidly. And every time they do, there's a cognitive cost in doing so. So we're not actually keeping a lot of balls in the air like an expert juggler. We're more like a bad amateur plate spinner, frantically switching from one task to the other, ignoring the one that's not right in front of us, but worried it will come crashing down at any minute. Even though we think we're getting a lot done, ironically, multitasking makes us demonstrably less efficient. Multitasking has been found to increase the production of stress hormone, cortisol, as well as the fight or flight hormone, adrenaline, which can overstimulate your brain and cause mental fog or scrambled thinking. Multitasking creates a dopamine-addicted feedback loop, effectively rewarding the brain for losing focus and for constantly searching for external stimulation. To make matters worse, The prefrontal cortex has a novelty bias, meaning that its attention can be easily hijacked by something new. The proverbial shiny objects we use to entice infants, puppies, and kittens. The irony here for those of us who are trying to focus amid competing activities is clear. The very brain region we need to rely on for staying on task is easily distracted. We answer the phone look up something on the internet, check our email, send a text. And each of these things tweaks the novelty-seeking, reward-seeking centers of our brain, causing a burst of endogenous opioids. No wonder it feels so good. All to the detriment of our staying on task. It's the ultimate empty calorie brain candy. Instead of reaping the big rewards that come from sustained focused effort, we instead reap empty rewards from completing a thousand little sugar-coated tasks. In the old days, if the phone rang and we were busy, we either didn't answer it or we turned the ringer off 
When all phones were wired to the wall, there was no exception of being able to reach us at all times. One might have gone out for a walk or been between places. And so if someone couldn't reach you or didn't feel like being reached, it was considered normal. Now more people have mobile phones than they have toilets. This has created an implicit expectation that you should be able to reach someone when it's convenient for you, regardless of whether it's convenient for them. This expectation is so ingrained that people in meetings routinely answer their phones and say, I'm sorry, I can't talk now. I'm in a meeting. Just a decade or two ago, those same people would have let a landline or their desk go unanswered during a meeting. So different were the expectations for reachability. Just having the opportunity to multitask is detrimental to cognitive performance. Jean Wilson, former visiting professor of psychology at Grisham College in London, calls it infomania. His research found that being in a situation where you're trying to concentrate on a task and an email is sitting unread in your inbox can reduce your effective IQ by 10 points. And although people ascribe many benefits to marijuana, including enhanced creativity and reduced pain and stress, it's well documented that its chief ingredient, cannabinol, activates dedicated cannabinol receptors in the brain that interferes profoundly with memory and with our ability to concentrate on several things at once. Wilson showed that the cognitive losses from multitasking are even greater than the cognitive losses from pot smoking. Russ Poldrick, a neuroscientist at Stanford, found that learning information while multitasking causes the new information to go to the wrong part of the brain. If students study and watch TV at the same time, for example, the information from their schoolwork goes into the striatum, a region specialized for storing new procedures and skills, not facts and ideas. Without the distraction of TV, the information goes into the hippocampus, where it's organized and categorized in a variety of ways, making it easier to retrieve. MIT's Earl Miller adds, people can't do multitasking very well. And when they say they can, they're deluding themselves. And it turns out the brain is very good at this deluding business. Asking the brain to shift attention from one activity to another causes the prefrontal cortex and the striatum to burn up oxygenated glucose, the same fuel they need to stay on task. This kind of rapid, continual shifting we do with multitasking causes the brain to burn through fuel so quickly that we feel exhausted and disoriented after even a short time. We've literally depleted the nutrients in our brain. This leads to compromises in both cognitive and physical performance. Among other things, repeated task switching leads to anxiety, which raises levels of stress hormone cortisol in the brain, which in turn can lead to aggressive and impulsive behavior. To make matters worse, lots of multitasking requires decision-making. Do I answer this text message or do I ignore it? How do I respond to this? How do I file this email? Do I continue what I'm working on now or take a break? It turns out that decision-making is also very hard on your neural resources, and that little decisions appear to take up as much energy as big ones. 
one of the first things we lose is impulse control. This rapidly spirals into a depleted state in which after making a lot of insignificant decisions, we can end up making truly bad decisions about something really important. Why would anyone want to add to their daily weight of information processing by trying to multitask? In discussing information overload with Fortune 500 leaders, top scientists, writers, students, and small business owners, email comes up again and again as the number one problem. It's not a philosophical objection to email itself. It's the mind-numbing number of emails that come in. When a 10-year-old son of a neuroscientist, Jeff Mogul, was asked what his father did for a living, he responded, he answers emails. Jeff admitted after some thought that it's not far from the truth. Workers in government, the arts, and industry report that sheer volume of emails they receive is overwhelming, taking a huge bite of their day. We feel obliged to answer our emails, but it seems impossible to do so and get anything else done. Before email, if you wanted to write to someone, you had to invest some effort in it. You sat down with a pen and paper or a typewriter and you carefully composed a message. There wasn't anything about the medium that lent itself to dashing off quick notes without giving them much thought, partly because of the ritual involved and the time it took to write a note. Find the address, an envelope, add postage, take it to the mailbox. Because the very act of writing a note or letter to someone took so many steps and was spread out over time, we didn't go into the trouble unless we had something important to say. Hmm, there's the key. Because of email's immediacy, most of us give very little thought to typing up any little thing that pops in our heads and hitting send. An email also doesn't cost anything. Sure, there's the money you paid for the computer and the internet connection, but there's no incremental cost to sending one more email. Compare this with paper letters. Hmm. Each one incurred the price of the envelope, the postage stamp, and although this doesn't represent a lot of money, well, it does these days, they were in limited supply. If you ran out of them, you have to make a special trip to the stationery store and the post office to buy more. So you didn't use them frivolously. The sheer ease of sending emails has led to a change in manners, a tendency to be less polite about what we ask of others. Many professionals tell a similar story. One said, a large portion of emails I receive are from people I barely know asking me to do something for them that is outside of what would normally be considered the scope of my work or my relationship with them. Email somehow apparently makes it okay to ask for things that you would never ask by phone or in person or by snail mail. There are also important differences between snail mail and email on the receiving end. In the old days, the only mail we got came once a day, which effectively created a cordoned off section of your day to collect it from the mailbox and then to sort it. Most importantly, because it took a few days to arrive, there was no expectation that you would act on it immediately. If you were engaged in another activity, you simply let the mail sit there in the box outside or on your desk until you were ready to deal with it. Now, email arrives continuously, and most emails demand some sort of action. 
Click on this link to see a video of a baby panda or answer this query from a coworker or make lunch plans with a friend or delete this email as spam. All this activity gives us a sense that we're getting things done. And in some cases we are, but we're sacrificing efficiency and deep concentration when we interrupt our priority activities with email. Until recently, each of the many different modes of communication we use signal its relevance, importance, and intent. If a loved one communicated with you via a poem or a song, even before the message was apparent, you had a reason to assume something about the nature of the content and its emotional value. If the same loved one communicated instead via a summons delivered by an officer of the court, you would have a different expectation of the message before even reading the document. Phone calls were typically used to transact different business than from telegrams or letters. The medium was a clue to the message. All of that has changed with email, and this is one of its overlooked disadvantages because it's used for everything. In the old days, you might sort all of your postal mail into two piles, roughly corresponding to personal letters and bills. If you were a corporate manager with a busy schedule, you might do this kind of sorting with telephone messages for callbacks. But emails are used for all of life's messages. We compulsively check our email in part because we don't know whether the next message might be leisure, amusement, an overdue bill, a query, something that needs to be done now or later, maybe life-changing or irrelevant. This uncertainty wreaks havoc with our rapid perceptional categorization system, causing stress and leading to decision overload. Every email requires a decision. Do I respond to it? If so, now or later, how important is it? What will be the social, economic, or job-related consequences if I don't answer? Or if I don't answer right now? Now, you don't think we're going to let text messages off the hook. Hmm. Because it's limited in characters, texting discourages thoughtful discussion or any level of detail, and its additive problems are compounded by its hyper-immediacy. Now, of course, email is approaching obsolescence as a communicative medium. Most people under the age of 30 think of email as outdated, and only the old people use it. In its place, they text, and some still post to Facebook. They attach documents, photos, videos, and links to their text messages and Facebook posts. Many people under 20 now see Facebook as a medium for the older generation. For them, texting has become the primary mode of communication. It offers privacy that you don't get with phone calls and immediacy you don't get with email. Crisis hotlines have begun accepting calls from at-risk youth via texting, and it allows them to have two big advantages. They can deal with more than one person at the same time, and they can pass the conversation on to an expert if needed without interrupting the conversation. But texting suffers from most of the problems of email and then some. Emails take some time to work their way through the internet, and they require that you take the step of explicitly opening them. Text messages magically appear on the screen of your phone and demand immediate attention from you. 
Add to that the social expectation that an unanswered text feels insulting to the sender, and you've got a recipe for addiction. You receive a text, and that activates your novelty centers. You respond and feel rewarded for having completed a task, even though the task was entirely unknown to you 15 seconds earlier. Each of those delivers a shot of dopamine as your limbic system cries out, more, more, give me more. In a famous experiment, neuroscientist Peter Milner and James Olds placed a small electrode in the brains of rats in a small structure of the limbic system called the nucleus accumbens. This structure regulates dopamine production and is the region that lights up when gamblers win a bet, drug addicts take cocaine, or people have orgasms. Olds and Milner called it the pleasure center. A lever in the cage allowed the rats to send a small electrical signal directly to the nucleus accumbens. Do you think they liked it? Boy, how they did. They liked it so much, they did nothing else. They forgot all about eating and sleeping. Long after they were hungry, they ignored tasty food if they had a chance to press that little chrome bar. They even ignored the opportunity for sex. The rats just pressed the lever over and over and over until they died of starvation and exhaustion. Wow, I'm going to totally look at multitasking differently. Closing the browsers as we speak. Unplugging without disconnecting. That's the title of this show. It's important to remember stepping away from technology reliance shouldn't interrupt your personal connections. If it does, you might need to reevaluate the balance you have in your in-person, face-to-face connections and social media friends and followers. Modern conveniences have made our lives easier. There is no doubt about that. But has it made it richer? Do you reinvest the extra time you save into growing your personal connections and experiences? People need people to love, to nurture, to learn from, to be heard from, to encourage, to be encouraged, to support and be supported. You see the theme. You need them and they need you. Sure, you can send a message with one hand at lightning speed and inform someone of something very important, but nothing can replace looking into another person's eyes while they hear the news, watching their reaction, giving them a high five or a shoulder to cry on. Nothing can replace you. Jennifer Latson offers us a cure for disconnection. Loneliness is a problem of epidemic proportions, affecting millions of all walks of life. But while its roots are complex, remedies may be within reach. This is an article she wrote for Psychology Today. In the world of peanuts, Charlie Brown once visited Lucy's psychiatry booth and asked, Can you cure loneliness? For a nickel, I can cure anything, Lucy said. Can you cure deep down Black, bottom of the well, no hope, into the world. What's the use, loneliness, he asked. And she said, for the same nickel? What can we do to protect ourselves from loneliness? Well, here are some really great ideas on that. First, don't bide by your mother's direction and do talk to strangers. Small talk isn't so small. So take the plunge and converse with someone beside you on the bus or in line at the store. 
Just chatting makes us happier and healthier, as Susan Pinker, author of The Village Effect. We can feel much better after just 30 seconds of talking to someone in person, whereas we don't get that benefit from online interaction. How about give it seven minutes? According to the seven-minute rule, it takes that long to know if a conversation is going to be interesting. Sherry Turkle, the author of Alone Together and Reclaiming Conversation, acknowledges that it can be hard. But it's when we stumble, hesitate, and have those lulls that we reveal ourselves most to each other. Schedule FaceTime. What does face-to-face contact with friends and family give us that virtual communication lacks? For one thing, it boosts our production of endorphins, the brain chemicals that ease pain and enhance well-being. That's one reason in-person interaction improves our physical health. If you can't get FaceTime, choose FaceTime. (laughs) Being there in person is always best, but video conferencing by Skype or FaceTime can help people divided by distance maintain the bonds they built in person, according to researchers. Phone calls are the next best thing. Hearing the other person's voice is a form of connection. While relationships conducted primarily by email or text seem to wither faster. Make sure to use Facebook wisely. Social media isn't inherently alienating, says Harvard epidemiologist Jeremy Noble. But to create sustainable connections, it should be used purposefully. If you're not using Facebook to show pictures of yourself smiling on vacation, you're not going to connect authentically. Instead, within the larger platforms, create smaller social networks, such as an online book club, where you can share meaningful personal reactions with a select group of people. Be a good neighbor. Getting to know your neighbors yields more benefits than access to a cup of sugar when they run out. One study found that higher neighborhood social cohesion lowers your risk for heart attack. So invite your neighbors over for coffee and offer to feed their cats when they go out of town. You'll be happier and healthy for it. Throw a dinner party. Eating together is a form of social glue, writes Susan Pinker in The Village Effect. Evidence of communal eating dates back at least 12,000 years. Sharing food was a way to resolve conflicts and create a group identity among hunter-gatherers long before villages existed. Get creative. Participating in the creative arts from joining a chorus to organizing craft night helps us connect deeply without talking directly about ourselves. A lot of people can't find the spoken words to express their feelings, but they can draw them, write expressively about them, or even dance them. When someone else pays attention to them and allows them to resonate with their own experience, it's as if an electric circuit gets completed and they're connected. How about talk about it? When Julie Bainbridge struggled with loneliness as a single New Yorker, she started a podcast, The Lonely Hour, and found that just talking about her feelings made her feel less lonely. She was surprised to find out how many people felt the same way and what a relief it was to know that she wasn't alone in her loneliness. How about reach out and touch someone, literally? Hugging, holding hands, and even just patting someone on the back is powerful medicine. Physical touch can lower our physiological stress response, helping fight infection and inflammation. It also cues our brains to release oxytocin, which helps strengthen social bonds.
It's time for our top 10 key highlights. Number one, to wonder, to have interest in knowing or learning something, to think about something with curiosity. Number two, by allowing your mind to wander, you're processing the world around you and coming up with solutions. Number three, if you want to grow, you're going to have to accept the bad stuff that comes with it. Number four, although we think we're doing several things at once, multitasking, this is a powerful and diabolical illusion. Number five, Multitasking has been found to increase the production of stress hormone cortisol, as well as the fight or flight hormone adrenaline, which can overstimulate the brain and cause mental fog and scrambled thinking. Number six, it's important to remember stepping away from technology reliance shouldn't interrupt your personal connections. Number seven, but nothing can replace looking into another person's eyes while they hear that news, watching their reaction, giving them a high five or a shoulder to cry on. Number eight, we can feel much better after just 30 seconds of talking to someone in person. Number nine, invite your neighbors over for coffee and offer to feed their cats while they're away. You'll be happier and healthier. And number 10, hugging, holding hands, or even just patting someone on the back is powerful medicine. If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they are not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, feeling overwhelmed and overstimulated? Unplug from the source of your discomfort. Let your mind wander without limits. Connect to those who breathe life and love into your world and reciprocate as you can. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone threw until the path was clear. That's when I found you. How I wound up here.